Warning, this episode has detailed descriptions of violence. Today on CityCast Chicago, the trial of two Illinois prison guards accused of killing an incarcerated man at Western Illinois Correctional Center begins its second week. Prosecutors say the guards brutally beat Larry Irvin to death in 2018. Irvin's death sparked an investigation by WBEZ into treatment at state prisons, especially around mental health, and what they found was beyond dehumanizing. Reporter Shannon Heffernan shares that story and more in the podcast Motive. The latest episode drops today. It's Monday, April 4th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Did you know anything about Mount Sterling? I've heard that, you know, it's a prison town. What exactly is that? So I knew I'd been looking at prisons for a while. So I was familiar with the Illinois Department of Corrections. I honestly hadn't spent that much time um, looking into Western Correctional Center itself. But you're right. It is a prison town. A prison town is a place, uh, usually a rural area. And often there's small towns where the prison is a big part of the economy. And so when you're in a place like that, a place like uh, Mount Sterling, Illinois, it seems like almost everybody you talk to knows someone who works inside the facility, has some connection to the facility. You know, so-and-so is dating so-and-so. You have people who are related. And so it creates this very close-knit community. And... um, our investigations into some of these things have shown us that, it, that in some circumstances that that's enabling it, it's making it easier to cover things up. Right. But Shannon, there was an event that brought you to Mount Sterling prison. Uh, can you t- describe to me what it was? So I got a call from someone uh, who needed to remain anonymous and told me that a 65 year old man had just died inside the facility. And they believed it was because he had been beaten to death by staff. And I knew from previous reporting that getting information about deaths inside Illinois prisons can be very difficult. But I really wanted to understand what what had happened to this man. And that sort of set us off on a journey to uh, figure out what happened to him specifically, which we did, but also to try to look at the larger context of all the things in the prison environment that Mm -hmm. enabled something like this to unfold because I think if you don't do that you end up telling a story about bad apples you know that cliche just bad apples right um which I think is a limited view of the situation we wanted to make sure we weren't just talking about like there's a few guys who made a mistake episode one is called the blind spot how far back could you find stories from incarcerated individuals discussing either being assaulted or harassed in this area of the prison the blind spot is a location where there are no security cameras in the prison, and our investigation showed that up and down the chain of command, people knew about it. So years before Larry Irvin died, a few years beforehand, we were able to find incidents. And not only find incidents where the person who was locked inside said there was a blind spot, the person who was allegedly beaten said there was a blind spot, but documentation where staff did investigations and wrote down, there's a blind spot here. So it was known, it was documented. Um, This would not have been a surprise to anybody who was looking closely at the facility. You talked to a few people who had, you know, alleged being assaulted in there. Can you tell me how did guards make use of this blind spot? 
right? So the stories usually follow a similar pattern. Um, Something is set off between a guard and an incarcerated person. Maybe there's an argument over something. Um, Maybe the uh, locked up person uh, did something that the staff didn't like, and they transfer them to segregation. Segregation is a part of the prison where you go when you're in trouble. And during their transport, we heard repeatedly that people were walked more quickly than they could keep up with and that they were handcuffed with their arms pulled behind their back up high, making it difficult to walk. So they were tripping and falling along the way and sometimes dragged. People call that the chicken walk. You're bent over in a a bow. They're just walking me faster and faster. And I said, I can't keep up this pace. They're pulling the handcuffs to make me like fall over. And the torture of knowing that your head is going to hit the cement. In videos of Larry Irvin, for example, that we got from that day, he's following that same exact pattern. You see him falling down. You actually see his pants fall down at one point and they throw them into the field and they keep pulling him in. Like they just discarded his clothes? They They just literally just throw it to the side and keep going. And then he gets to this location that has been identified as a blind spot. And we can't see what happens there, right? And we heard from multiple people that that is where staff would then beat them. Push your head against the wall, push your shoulder against the wall, throw you to the floor. Yes. And the beatings happen in very similar ways, the way you're talking about. A lot of people talked about having their heads rammed into the door, um, sort of like they were being used as a battering ram. And um, we saw injuries to the ribs often. I want to talk about Larry Irvin a little longer. You know, like you said, his story follows this kind of similar pattern. He's taken across segregation, gone to the blind spot. And then when he comes out of it, he goes back to his cell. People, you know, other individuals there speak about how he noticeably, you know, was in pain and was hurt. Can you kind of one, tell me a little bit about Larry's story and, and how did that incident take place? So uh, Larry Irvin had been in and out of prison for a, a chunk of his life, um, but he had also been in and out of facilities for mental illness. Um, he the, the crime that landed him behind bars was he had stolen a couple of watches and um, tried to sell them on the street. And then when someone offered to buy them for $11, he slapped her hand away and took the $11. So that's the level of crime we're talking about that had landed him in prison. Um, He was a few months away from his release when he passed away. And we, while we don't have video of the incident itself, we do have descriptions we've heard from people of what happened leading up and after the incident. And we have video of what led up to it. So you see him pulled across, walked across, just like we described before, and he goes into the segregation building. And then we have other men who were in the building with him who said he was uh, bloody and bruised. The nurse wrote into her medical notes that he was vomiting on the floor. But he was still kept there for a long time before they actually transferred him to the hospital, where he... uh, remained alive for uh, weeks afterwards until he passed away. Um, His family is not sure who exactly buried him, if it was the county or the state, and no one's confirmed that to me, but we do know that he was put in an unmarked grave. And the family talks about how 
the whole experience of being informed of his death felt like just another attempt to make this disappear and sort of an assumption that they could make Larry Irvin disappear. What was the the immediate aftermath of this? I, I remember one individual saying that unfortunately it was going to take something like a person dying for people to start paying attention to this more and more. And, and that is what happened with, with Larry Irvin. Once you start watching this and other people start watching this, what's the fallout? So uh, three staff have been charged, federally charged, with civil rights violations. Um, one has already pleaded guilty. The other two are on trial right now, actually, um, in Springfield, Illinois. Um, the prison has told me that they've now put cameras in that blind spot. But I think it's important to note that they still insist that that footage should not be available to the public or to journalists. Um, when you think about cameras in prison, you have to remember the prison is placing those cameras where they choose to place them. Prison officials are the ones reviewing the footage and deciding who has access to it. One of the stories that really stuck out to me was this story of a man named Roger Latimer, whose story follows a similar pattern. He's taken, he's, he's walked across to segregation, goes into the blind spot. And afterwards, he was taken to the hospital. And in his medical notes, the nurse actually writes that she tried to take photographs of his injuries, which was standard to have a part of his medical record, but that the staff stopped her and told her that she was not allowed to take any pictures. The staff of the hospital or the officers who had... The staff of the prison, the officers who were with him, told her, you can't take pictures of him. And he asked to make a police report saying, I'm, I'm, I was assaulted. And the nurse, again, writes into her medical report, they're telling me that if the patient keeps talking about reporting this to police, that they're going to take him back to the prison to get treatment instead of getting it here at the hospital. So when you see things like that, you're starting to get a picture of how many different people at how many different levels need to participate to keep something like this quiet for so long. Episode two goes to another prison town, Pontiac, nearly two hours southwest of Chicago. Uh, I even grew up hearing about Pontiac and, and uh, yeah. it follows two mental health workers at the prison. Uh, first, it's important to note that the state had promised in federal court to improve mental health care in prisons. Uh, when was that and what was the result of that court order? So there's a uh, large lawsuit called uh, Rosho where the state basically agreed to a settlement um, in response to this lawsuit that said that the mental health care in Illinois prisons was so bad it was violating the Constitution. And they said they were going to make all kinds of improvements, including improving access to mental health care, right? Um, and at this point is when these two women get hired. They're part of the mental health staff that is supposed to go in and try to fix things. I knew it would be a struggle, as I thought, with the inmates, you know, but I'm a believer of God. So I'm like, hey, God is sending me here. I'm going to help these guys and I'm going to really make, you know, a change in somebody's life. So in your imagination, what would it be like? Meeting with the inmates, you know, hearing their past, you know, giving them proper coping skills, trying to keep them from coming back into the system. I really thought, hey, the state is doing a great thing. They want to help these offenders. But when they got inside, they felt like there was a lot of resistance mm -hmm. to actually doing that, 
to actually making that happen. And more than that, they found that they were seeing signs. They didn't always directly see abuse, but they saw the signs of abuse. They would see injuries on people. They would hear stories from them. What were their jobs? What were they being asked to do um, on a day-to-day basis? Excellent question. They were uh, mental health counselors, so they're providing treatment. It was a lot of group therapy, but they're also doing cell-side visits where they're going to check in on people. I thought that I was going to be actually being able to provide like therapy and and actually like work with people when they're in crisis and things like that. But that's not what you're doing. You're actually literally just going in and you actually don't have time to do anything but just ask these standard questions. Are you suicidal? Do you feel like hurting yourself? Can you guarantee your safety? That's pretty much it. You started this reporting after an inmate was killed in prison uh, and the trial's going on. What have you learned about the state of Illinois prisons in general? So a couple of things. First of all, the way prisons operate in Illinois, um, there is a uh, facility to facility. You really have cultures developing. So each facility really is its own ecosystem. But there are larger trends we see. And one I would say is this issue of transparency. Who's able to see inside these facilities and who's able to monitor what's happening. Any mail I send inside or I receive from prison can be read by staff members and can be censored. Any phone call I make or get from a prisoner can be recorded and monitored by staff. So I think an ongoing theme is like, how are we getting information outside of these places? Because you've, you've seen these uh, reactions to, to police violence in recent years, but a lot of those videos, they're not body cams. Their cell phone footage that somebody took, right, who was on the street, you don't have that inside a prison facility. So how are we going to make sure we know what's happening? So I would say that that is one big theme. The other thing to return to the, to the issue of mental illness is one thing I've, I've changed since I've been doing prison reporting is I used to use a phrase a lot that you'll hear other media use of like, this prisoner jail is one of the largest treatment centers in the country or in the city or whatever, depending on what we're talking about. Um, and I think that that, by saying a phrase like that, you're saying, oh, what's happening here can be considered reasonable mental health treatment. And while I do think there are good people doing good work and there are people who are locked inside who are finding ways to get the treatment they need, it is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel even when I say the name of like correction center. I'm like, that is not what's taking place inside of these places. And, um, you know, when we have these conversations, when you're going through these narratives, you know, so many people lack the motivation to pay attention because it's easy for them, you know, to, to use a narrative that these folks is locked up. They did something wrong. You know, a lot of times when you talk about Pontiac, people say, oh, that's the worst of the worst. Right. That, that's kind of the phrase they use to create distance. You know, how do we break that? Uh, you know, to, to get people to care about what is happening to human beings on our dime and on our watch. I'm so glad you asked about that. I think that there's a tendency, and, I, and I, I've been guilty of this um, in the media, of highlighting the cases where the person who's locked up has done the kind of crime that is easily labeled sympathetic, mm-hmm. right? A drug crime or a minor, minor property crime. Yeah. 
Or still in 11 or, you know, still in $11. Right, exactly. But we made a real point in this series to include people who are incarcerated for really serious crimes, for things that are not okay, (laughs) that caused serious harm. Because I think if you want to wrestle with what's happening inside our prisons, you have to include people who've done things you don't like because that's a big part of the population. And if we want to truly wrestle with the problem of incarceration, and we want to truly think about what we want done and how we want it done, you have to talk about those people too. And I think that it can be convenient not to, but 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 the question, you know, and we talk about this in the first episode is, you know, like it's part of what makes it easy to ignore, right? And I think if, if most people stop and think, even about someone who did a crime that they really don't like, do they think the state should be enabled to physically harm them? I think most people, if they stopped and thought about it, are still going to say no. Yeah. Uh, in, in your reporting, do, do you hear that from people? Who cares about, you know, someone who committed assault or murder or was in possession of, you know, you know, graphic illicit material. Like, do, do you hear that dismissiveness out of people? I often hear a, how can you believe them? Um, mm. How can you trust them over the staff? So it becomes an issue of uh, legitimacy of their stories. Yeah. And, and you know, here's the thing. I'm a journalist. I doubt everybody. I'm looking really careful at everybody. Yeah. So when somebody who's locked up comes to me with a story, I am not swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. I'm looking at the documents. I'm looking at the medical reports. I'm looking for video. I'm looking. I'm doubting their story. And I'm doing the same thing when a staff member says nothing like that ever happened. You know, have you found in your reporting ways for citizens to get involved with, you know, demanding change? My main goal with this work, you know, I'm a journalist. I don't advocate for specific things, Mm -hmm. but I will consider this a huge success if all that happens for listeners is they stop thinking about prisons as they exist now as inevitable. I think that there is a feeling that crime exists, so prisons exist. And if prisons exist, they're going to look like this, right? No matter what you decide you think needs to happen, I think the very first step is disrupting that sense of inevitability, Mm -hmm. that this is the only way that this is the way it has always been and will always be. Um, So I think the first challenge I would present to folks before even getting to the what do we do is what is your relationship to how you think about incarceration? Mm -hmm. And also what is your person, like doing this project has changed me personally in some big ways. Like what is your relationship to punishment? When you've been hurt or someone you loved has been hurt, what do you want to happen? even though there might be a thousand different answers to what do we do now or what should be done instead or stick with the status quo. If we can disrupt that inevitability, I will feel like we have succeeded. Shannon Heffernan is a WBEZ reporter and the host of season four of Motive, available now. I hope we can talk soon, Shannon. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. We got safety town halls today at Daly College and tomorrow at Truman College. 
and the city is hosting three public meetings about the plans for that new casino starting tomorrow at Harold Washington Library at 6 p.m. Check our daily newsletter for the remaining locations. That's also where you can read about what's happening with the Illinois Prison Board, which has united some Democrats and Republicans against Governor J.B. Pritzker. And some good news to get you through. The Bulls are in the final week before the playoffs start. The good news is we in the 6th seed right now. We're home against the Bucks tomorrow night on ESPN. I think your boy might need to be in the building for that one. Please visit chicago.citycast.fm to subscribe to the daily newsletter. If you've been reading for a while, take our audience survey. We want to know what you love and what you want to see improve, and we'll enter you in for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. As always, I appreciate you for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Check our daily... Because I was going to tell you to do the audience survey.